About 18 months ago, I was asked to speak at a men's breakfast at Great Wenham, Ivan Fenning's farm. Then, were there any men from here were there? If they were, you're going to get a slight repeat. Like all these events, uh, the pressure builds up for you to have a title uh, for your talk so it can be advertised. And this went on and on, and I kept getting pestered with people writing and emailing and phoning until finally it came to the I've-got-to-know-today kind of business. And so off the top of my head, I said, faith in the 21st century. It wasn't until I got to the subject, about a week before I was supposed to do it, that I realised how pretentious this sounded. It sounded as though I was going to do a review of the whole of the Christian world on a full English. And I didn't think that would go down very well. And what I really was wanting to do was to think about our faith, your faith, mine, in the 21st century. Now. How does the 21st century, the one we're living in, how does it affect our faith? Does it help our faith or does it decrease our faith? And this was all provoked, not by any great thesis or thing I was reading. It actually came about from an email from my sister-in-law. I don't know what your sister-in-law is like, but emails from her are not always that profound. She is American and therefore has difficulties. Um, (laughs) I was thinking of a word there to say. But more about her in a minute. So here I was launched on thinking about our faith now. If you want a general, if you want a picture, as I've mentioned, America, in the last 20 years in America, the number of people who don't go to church, who don't go to church, has increased from 39 million to 73 million. In other words, in the last 20 years, America has lost a third of the population going to church. And if you put those figures across Britain, they would be similar. So on one hand, if you look about faith in the 21st century, we're losing it nationally. But what I wanted to try and do is to say, how on earth do I... Look at faith. Faith is such an important subject in the New Testament. 300 times comes the word faith. How often in the Old Testament? Twice. Now that will be an amazement to you, just twice. I will see anybody at the door who can tell me where those two occasions are. It doesn't mean there's not faith in the Old Testament. And in fact, if we look in Hebrews 11, 24 times comes the word faith and it's commending everybody from Abraham right through for their faith. But the word faith doesn't come in the Old Testament. So how to look at the picture of our faith in the 21st century? How do we look at it? Well, the reading today gave us a clue. Jesus used a unique word. He's the only person who used it ever. It's not in Greek writing anywhere. It's a single Greek word which is translated into English as little faith. You of little faith. And it comes in five different situations in the New Testament. 
with our time scale this morning, I want to just look at four of those situations very briefly and see whether in those situations you and I in the 21st century are actually exercising faith. The first one was in Matthew 6, as was read, and it's about our daily life, our provision for our lives, what we should eat, what we should drink, what we should wear. And if you are not exercising faith over these things, then the word described there is worry. Worry is the word which Jesus describes a lack of faith. John Wesley said, I'd sooner curse and swear than worry. It's less dishonouring to God. Worry is not trusting God. Now, there are many of us, I'm sure, who at times in our lives have really struggled. We've, we've had to have very little income. We've had great pressures on us. We found it difficult to survive. We've had to actually ask the Lord for our provisions. I can remember when I started in Christian work, I had the princely sum of £10 a week. I don't know what that relates today, but it's certainly not a living wage in anybody's language. And I had to just ask the Lord day by day for everything that I got. I had to live by faith, and I did that for 20 years, just trusting him. And everything came that way. What I wore, if I needed transport, everything, God just supplied it. But now in the 21st century, when I'm older and many of you are settled, we don't need to pray about these things. We have the resources, don't we? The danger is, in the nuclear family, which is how we live, parents and children, each of us has to get a full set of everything, don't we? You as parents have to supply mortgage for the house, living, care for your children, every kind of gadget and gazebo, all the kind of things. So each of us, from every family, has to supply all of these things. So our focus has got to be on getting money. That's why husbands and wives have to work. That's why all the pressure is on us. And we have very little time over for anything spiritual in the 21st century. Imagine what it would be like if we could share things a bit. We didn't all have to have everything. It's like the man who went to his minister and said, Minister, I've been hearing that there's a terrific book. It's called so-and-so. You wouldn't have a copy, would you? And he said, oh, yes, yes, I've got a copy in my library. The man said, can I borrow it, please? He said, well, I'm sorry, I don't lend out books. If you want to read it in my study, you can. The man said, oh, thank you very much. A few weeks later, the minister's lawnmower broke down. He asked this man whether he could borrow it. And he said, yes, if he used it in my garden. If we could share somehow, rather than each of us has to get everything, and usually two or three of everything, what a different world it would be. How much more would we have to give, and how much more time would we have to give to our families and and relations and to the church? So we are in this world where we constantly trust, not in faith but in our resources and what we've got. And our faith is diminished, isn't it? My faith is nothing like 
as good as it used to be when I had to trust God for everything. Let me just tell you one thing, how I was clothed. I was, people used to say how well clothed I was. And what they didn't know was this. My mother ran a rummage sale for the local church. And one of the people she used to tap, and she was good at tapping, very good, was a businessman in the town in Leicester. He had a big factory. She used to tap him for clothes. And he bought all his clothes from Harrods. And often he didn't wear them. He just gave them to her in the rummage cell and they fitted me exactly. I was actually furnished through him, through my mother. And everybody used to say, God, look at you. It wasn't that I just got clothes, but I got the best clothes that I couldn't possibly have afforded if it had working. Isn't that how God does it? During that period, I was given six cars. And it was as though the Lord said, well, I've got all these cars, everybody buys their own, nobody asks me for one, so how many do you want? <laughs> we go to faith last, don't we? In those days, I had to live walking with God. It was the only way. And I knew if I was out of step with God, then I was struggling financially. I'll tell you one more thing. One of these cars broke down badly that I was given. And I had to take it to a friend of mine who, was a, who owned a garage. And uh, he, he'd repaired it. He'd worked overnight to repair it so I could get back on the road. And I said to him, oh, I'm really, really, really grateful. How, how much is it? What do I owe you? Well, he says, oh, no, I have this one on me. I said, not on your life. But I said, have you made the bill out? He said, well, yes. He said, I've just made it out. I said, I'll tell you how much it is. So I told him how much it was. It was £142.57. He said, how do, you, how do you know that? How could you possibly know that? I said, that's how much I've been given by the Lord. And he said, you know, your God's real, isn't he? He is. If we trust him. If we go to our own resources in the 21st century, we miss out, don't we? The second occasion the word little faith comes that Jesus uses is in Matthew, again, chapter 8, where he's talking about the sudden storm that comes up. You remember the disciples are in the boat, and a sudden storm appears, and this time they're not worried. It's a different Greek word. It's the word afraid. They're afraid. They're fearful. And therefore they cry out to him. And I was thinking in the 21st century, living here in Britain, what am I afraid of? Because we live in a country, we've already had prayers for different parts of the world, Syria particularly. Imagine how your faith would be if you were living in Syria. Living in Britain in a democracy, we have London as a capital that's not been occupied in a thousand years. It's the only capital in Europe not occupied in a thousand years. We have peace, you may not like the government, but we have peace, we have stability, we don't have any of these pressures, we, we don't need to be afraid. I think the last major crisis we had that made people afraid was perhaps in the 1950s with the Cuban crisis. Yes, we've had the IRA and we have terrorism, but generally we're not afraid. We're not afraid about natural disasters either. Imagine we lived in Japan or in New Zealand, or in Pakistan. 
We're very fortunate, aren't we? Our forefathers here in East Anglia have exercised the most faith of any other part of Britain. How do I know that? Because all the mountains have gone into the sea. I always say my wife's chairman of the uh, Mountain Rescue Service for East Anglia never had a call out. (laughs) No, what we do is we rely, don't we, on these facts that we live in in a placid world, a protected world. I think the only time that we get any great storm coming up is if we're faced with illness. If suddenly we're taken ill. And it was George Bernard Shaw who said, we've not lost faith, but we have transferred the faith we had in God to the medical profession. Now we trust the National Health Service. That's our first port of call. We go through all of that, don't we? And, and at the end of that, if it's terminal, then we start to exercise faith and ask for prayer. But normally we're not afraid because we have the resources there. This is one of the things provoked me for thinking about this today. Uh, I have a GP, retired GP, who lives three doors from us. And uh, he goes away on cruises quite often, bless him. And uh, when he does, we look after his house for him. And uh, I water his plants, bless him. They survived this last time. That was really good. They survived. (laughs) He'd been away on a cruise, he came back, and three weeks ago he invited us round for lunch because, uh, to thank us for looking after his house. And after, when he's had a couple of glasses of wine, and he's, well, uh, he starts reminiscing about his life in medicine and all the rest of it, as doctors can. But one of the things he said which really made me <laughs> sit up was that he was on call one day, and he got a call from a lady who said a husband had collapsed and was unconscious. He said, where are you? She said, on Norwich Road. He said, look, I'm only a few minutes away. I'll be there. He got there and he had all the necessary things with him. He brought this fellow around. He got him set up so that when the ambulance came, he could be taken away and all was well. And after that, on occasions, about once a year or so, he used to bump into this fellow in the street and the fellow would recount blow by blow what had happened that day. The doctor used to say, oh, here we go again, you know. Oh, come, oh, yeah. And this went on and on every time he met him. And then some 20 years after the event, he bumped into the man, and the man said, oh, doctor, it's you, do you remember? And, oh, dear, yeah, I remember. Like this. And then the man said, do you remember what year that was? He said, no. Since 1977. Oh. He said, do you remember what day it was? No. He said, well, he told him what day it was. He said, do you know what else happened that day? No. He said, it's the day Elvis died. He said, you just think, if he'd have lived on Norwich Road, he'd be alive today. (laughs) If anybody can work out the logic of that, they can see me afterwards. But we have all these other things which draw away our faith. So we don't have to walk with God and be close with him. We can rely upon the medical profession or politicians or etc. So our faith is diminished. We're not afraid. The third 
passage that I want to just think about for a moment that is in Matthew 16. And it's not a very familiar one. It's from verse 5 to verse 12. And it's Jesus warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees. And what it shows is just where the disciples were spiritually. Because they were going on a trip, and what they'd forgotten was the sandwiches. They had forgotten the sandwiches. Jesus talking about leaven made them think he was talking about sandwiches. And he says, oh, goodness, how long have I been with you? You're still thinking on this level. I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. What's happening? How spiritual would you say we are compared with previous generations? I'm asking questions today. I'm not answering them. You notice that. I'm just trying to get us to think about our faith. I would have said we're nothing like as, as, fa- as much, have as much faith as previous generations simply because, like my parents, my parents went through two world wars. You have to have faith. We're, our faith is diminished. Therefore, people like Dawkins and Hitchin and Harris and all the others who are writing about atheism, where on earth are the people writing about the faith? Where's the church standing up and saying, excuse me, this land was based on the word of God. Excuse me, who are you? And if you want to get one of them, and they are trying to tell you what happened in the beginning, ask them a biblical question. What happened before the beginning? Tell us that from science, please. The Bible does. It tells us what was before the beginning, not just the beginning. Do we have great faith? I remember the young man, a Jew, who went to Rabbi and said, Rabbi, I don't believe. I'm an atheist. He said, you've obviously studied the Talmud. How about the Mishnah? He says, son, you're not an atheist, you're an ignoramus. <laughs> the average person today has no understanding of the word of God, do they? I was reading only recently, because we came from North Wales, just near to where we lived, is a place called Rudlin. It's got a fa- famous castle there. And in the 18th century, Rudlin decided they'd have a Sunday market. And they set this market up, they got the stalls, they got the people there, they got everything there. And an itinerant preacher came along and stood on a box and preached against this Sunday market to such an effect that they all rolled up their stuff, took their stands away, and it closed. And I checked on the internet... This week, it still never started again. Now, why could he do that? Because those people there had been taught the word of God, knew very well you shouldn't do these things on the Sabbath, and were convicted. Today, people have no understanding, no grasp, not even a basic. I call it the Gazorgenplatz. 
probably better explain that. Um, Bob Newhart, the comedian, he says, if you have an infinite number of monkeys and an infinite number of typewriters, in the end, they'll produce all the great books. And one day, he goes to check one of these monkeys, and this monkey's got, to be or not to be, that is the Gesorgenplatz. And I meet people all over who you just think, Gesorgenplatz. There's no thinking. They know depth. There's no understanding. There's no joined-up theology. There's... I was in the classroom one. <laughs> Lad put up his hand in the middle of a lesson. I'm teaching RE. Supposedly, he puts up his hand. He says, please, sir, what must I do to be saved? I thought, God, this is the moment. This is the moment. Wow. So I took a deep breath and started to tell him what he must do to be saved. And in the middle of this, he put up his hand, he said, please, sir, do you think Hondas are better than Suzuki's? And you think, Gesorgenplatz. Are we more spiritual? Do we know our Bibles better? Are we more prayerful? I don't think so. And that's the 21st century, isn't it? There's so many distractions, aren't there? Youngsters don't start off reading their Bibles, do they? Xbox rules, okay? I could go on with this for a lot longer, but let's just do one last thing. The last one I want to just point out to you is in Matthew 17. And it's that passage where Jesus and key disciples are on top of the mountain and there is a transfiguration. Jesus is revealing who he is to these people. And down in the valley at the same time, the rest of the disciples are faced with a boy who has seizures. And they try and heal him and can't. And when Jesus comes down, he says to them, Oh, you of little faith. What triggered my thinking about this today was this, my, the email from my sister-in-law. I said she's American, which is true, but her background, her family come from Sicily. They have their roots in the mafia. Therefore, you don't mess with her too quickly. She's an interesting person. This email she sent me says, look at this video that's on the internet, see what you think of it. Now, an American video on the internet, pinches of salt. But I decided I would, to placate her, I'd watch it. And it told this story, and it's a true story, of a man who's on his way to work, in his car, he's taken ill, he realises it's seriously ill, he turns his car around, he heads to the local hospital, he manages to park his car, he gets out of it and gets into the hospital foyer and dies. Now, if you're going to die, that's probably as good a place as any to do it. He's pounced on by a team, uh, a medical team, including a consultant and all the rest. They cart him into a room and for the next hour, they minister to him to try and revive him. At the end of an hour, they all look at each other and say... He's dead. He's dead. 
They therefore agree to get rid of all the apparatus they've got and they bring a nurse in to prepare this guy for the mortuary. And the leading consultant heads back towards his office. On his way to his office, the Lord says to him, I want you to go back and pray for that fellow. He says to the Lord, not on your life. I don't pray for the dead. He gets to his office, sits down, and the Lord won't leave him alone. The Lord gives him a really hard time and says, look, you go back and pray for that fellow. He says, Lord, we've just spent an hour. He's dead. We've done everything we can. He's dead. I'm going to look a complete fool if I go up there and pray for him. The Lord says, do it. He goes back, he goes into the room, he asks the nurse whether she will leave for a moment, and he lays hands on this man and prays for him. Now you're expecting, and you are expectant by the look of it, you're expecting for him at that moment, because this is America, for him to rise up and ask for a piece of toast. He doesn't. He's dead. The consultant goes out of there, and the Lord says to him, Now get the team in to give him the treatment. So he goes back to his registrar and says to him, look, um, I want you to go back in there and give the guy another dose. They say, we can't. We've done an hour. He's dead. We know he's dead. He's dead. The consultant said, I've just prayed for him. I want you to go in there and give him another shot. On your head be it. They all go in, bring out what they want, minister to the guy, give him a shot, and at this point, he does rise up. And not only that, and I don't know, I'm not a medical person at all, um, they said all his vital signs were absolutely normal, right from the word go. And they said after being for an hour, that was not usual. When the doctor got back to his office and sat down, he said to the Lord, Lord, I apologise. I've been living my life busily, doing what I could, trying to be helpful, but I've ignored the most important thing, and that is trust in you. Forgive me. Forgive me. The guy who was revived gives his testimony as bright as a button. Wonderful. Our spiritual power depends upon our faith that God is a God of miracles. That he will do these things for us. That even the dead will rise because of Jesus. How is the 21st century affecting our faith? For the better or the worse? I'd suggest it's for the much worse. And I think we just need to be very, very careful that we put our priorities in the right order. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else, everything will follow on from that. A word of prayer.
Father, we just ask you to forgive us for how we've got caught up in this century and in all its natural ability and all its natural provision. And Father, we've neglected our spiritual lives. Father, they've been hindered by all the things that each day we have to do. Chasing whatever it is we're chasing. Filled with things that are just passing and not eternal. Father, help us to realign our lives. Help us to reset our priorities. Help us to look in every instance first to you. Seeking your mind in things. Trusting you. Knowing you're the sovereign God. Father, forgive us for what is past. Renew and refresh us and make us the people you want us to be. That we will see miracles in this day and age at your hand. And Father, for any today who are worried or afraid or doubting or caught up with the leaven of the Pharisees, or lacking power. Father, meet them afresh today. Touch them and let them know your anointing upon their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.